Good afternoon. Good Sunday afternoon. It is June 30th. Yes, the last day of June in 2019. Months seems to have gone by fast. And welcome to Tell the Damn Story. Uh, this week, like last week, uh, Chris and I are running solo here, so let's wish him well wherever he travel. Um, we'll get into that at another time. Um, but uh, today I want to pick up on where we were last week with uh, episode 92, which was the seven sources of good story ideas. Um, as you probably know, those of you who who uh, listened and checked out that, that particular episode, and I hope you did, um, among other things, aside from the things that I said, I gave you guys a list, you know, a little, uh, you could click and print out a list of the seven uh, top sources for good story ideas. And among those sources, you know, other than books and personal experiences, there was life, you know, it says glimpses of people, places and things, you know, fragments of everyday life are fuel for the creative fire. And I thought what I would do with uh, this week's episode is dive into that a little bit deeper. Uh, and because, as you know, you know, any of us who are, are storytellers, you know that, you know, there are levels beneath levels beneath levels of any good stories, the subtext, you know, actors understand that, you know, what are you playing? What are you playing overtly? And what are you playing, uh, you know, on, on the sub level? What's your subtext? What do you, what's your intention in a scene, no matter what you're saying? So in pursuing good story ideas, in observing life and looking for inspirations and so forth, there are there are ways that we can look at specific arenas, and life is one of the big ones. You know, and so I thought by sharing some experiences that I've had uh, over the years that I've been doing this uh, might help illuminate some possible pathways for you. So let's let's start with <laughs> I'm going to tell I'm going to do some storytelling here as I share these thoughts. So. Um, First off, I was, uh, I am an only child. You know, mom, mom, you know, had me and went, okay, that's enough. And she basically, she raised me by herself. So it was, it was very hard on her. I mean, you know, those who know me know that, wow, there's a lot going on in this man's head. Not sure I want to know all of it. And my mom's had to deal with that when I was a kid and totally the, 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 the imagination, the mind, the personality, the crazies were just at their peak you know, I was, everything was out there. The world was out there. I was out there. You know, my friends and everything was just crazy. And I lived in, uh, or I should say we lived in uh, what was considered, you know, a, a poor neighborhood, uh, the, the ghetto, as, as Elvis used to sing, in the ghetto. Anyway, uh, we, we had some rough times. And I went to school with a lot of middle class kids. So it was middle class, upper middle class. And so I got to see both sides of that world while I was growing up. So again, the active imagination, the mind that was just pulling in everything that I could, you know, from, from again, day-to-day -day experiences to what I was reading or what I was watching on television or when I, you know, got those rare opportunities to go to the movies, what I saw there, all this stuff was coming in. My, my grandmother uh, was a devout member of a particular religion. And so on weekends when we spent more time with her and my grandfather, then that was coming at me too. And then I had cousins who were Catholic and that was another thing that was coming in. So I was just pulling in all these different points of view, even at a young age and being exposed to a lot of different things at that early development age. And among them were some of the movies and things that I used to watch, uh, you know, again, on television as well as whatever I could, you know, whenever I could get to the movie theater. 
and one of them that sort of sticks with me, you know, and I think maybe because of, again, the life I was leading, was there was a series of films called The Bowery Boys or The Dead End Kids. Um, they were kids who theoretically lived in, you know, fictional storyline, but they were based on the lifestyle of living in Hell's Kitchen, New York. And these films were done predominantly, the, the Dead End Kids or East Side Kids were done in the 40s. Uh, the series of films progressed with a lot of the same cast members right into the 50s. So they weren't kids anymore, but nevertheless, we were still hanging with that particular gang. It was a gang of boys who would go around the neighborhood getting into different situations. And a lot of the stories in the early days revolved around trying to stay out of crime or some of their friends getting sucked into crime, winding up in prison, having brothers or fathers, relatives who were big-time gangsters, or they got in a bad situation and they did time. It was, it was basically about hard times and somehow trying to make it. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Uh, there was a black character in the group uh, called Scruno. Uh, we'll talk about that at another time. Uh, but the bottom line was this is one of the things that I was watching. And this was maybe from age 10 or 11 or so up. So by the time I'm in junior high, I'm 13, 14 years old, I have friends, uh, Michael and Angel, and they were great guys. Uh, they were, you know, this, these were the, the guys I ran with most of the time. And unlike some of the other kids we knew, um, we weren't, you know, part of a clique. We weren't part of a, a quote-unquote, a gang. We weren't uh, with the in crowd. Uh, all of us came from uh, challenged, you know, financial backgrounds, uh, put it more, you know, politically correct. And so we didn't have a lot. So we, we connected on that level. But the other level we connected on is we were all into old movies or adventure shows and comics. And that was that was where we really bonded. You know, we 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 both read, or all three of us read Batman and Robin. We we watched the Green Hornet on television. You know, with, you know Bruce and uh, not Bruce, uh, Britt Reed and Cato. You know, we we were there, and this was this was a big part of our fantasy in our world. So we lived in a poor neighborhood or in the projects, and you know, we had certain rough times in our lives, but. We also had these fantasies that we lived through these books and through these films. Well, a friend of, 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 of Michael's um, uh, family had a movie camera. And so we decided, wouldn't it be cool if we could, you know, take pictures of ourselves, you know, shoot a little bit of footage, doing some of this cool stuff. And I, I left out that Michael and, and Angelo both made their own costumes. That's right. They made their own Batman and Robin costumes. They look pretty darn good. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because I was a chubby kid, uh, also, uh, you know, it's not Batman and Robin and friend, you know, and I don't look like Superman. Uh, so I got to be the villain in most of our endeavors. Uh, I will not go into that. <laughs> you know? I will simply say that we had a chance to shoot some movies. We had the backdrop of Central Park. You know, not only with the grass and the trees, but there's an old fort in there and there's some other stuff. So we had these really cool backdrops. And we used to do these little film clips, these little maybe like two-minute, three-minute adventures. We got ambitious as we got a little bit older. We wanted to do a real, you know, real solid movie where we, you know, it was original characters and everything. And that's where the, the Dead End Kids ties in because we came up with the Blind Alley Kids. And as we 
pulled from, you know, the fantasy world that we wanted to deal with, you know, maybe fighting crime or whatever. We also pulled from our own life experiences. So, you know, two of us were black. One was Hispanic. Uh, we had another friend who's, again, from the neighborhood. So we pulled him in. So, you know, the, the, the team or the gang was like four guys. And, you know, we had our, our neighborhood as a backdrop. And we had the park, you know, to sort of break up the monotony of buildings and concrete. But we didn't have a story. And that's, that's when my second love came into play. So, you know, instead of just making up ideas and moving action figures around or, or t- you know, throwing ideas back and forth and us just acting them out instantly, I actually sat down and, and tried to write some stories and some scripts for us. And yeah, again, you pull from the things you've seen, you pull from the movies and the books that have influenced you, but ultimately, you know, you're also pretending that you are something more than what you really are. And maybe this was one of the first times that I became aware of the fact that in this fantasy, in this storyline that I'm developing, I could be more than the chubby kid. I could be more than the guy who made people laugh. Uh, I could be a guy who maybe even, you know, some girl would like because I was in control of this particular scenario. And so I started pulling from, again, our backgrounds, some of the friends we had, some of the things we had seen. And we we wrote a couple of scripts, you know, I say we because I would, you know, pin these things and then they would read it and they would say, oh, can we do this? Can we do that? And can we can we put a car chase in it? None of us drove. Okay, I, you know, we hadn't worked out all of those specifics. Our resources were very limited, but, you know, we would we'd sit there and we'd have a great time. Yeah, we can have this and we can leap over that and we can scale such and such. We could do all this stuff. But, you know, we kept it real. We, we kept it down to what we could actually do. And for a while, the story writing was enough. You know, we, we didn't actually get to film a Blind Alley Kid adventure. We got to film a couple of Batman and Robin things. We got to do a public appearance as Batman and Robin and the villain Midnight. I Hey, you know, I, I wasn't a great writer then. I was, I was just imaginative. But we got to do that. And again, fulfilling a fantasy, but also playing out the kind of person we wanted to be and the kind of people we admired. Now, all around us, there are all kinds of things going on. We're talking the early 60s, so we have the civil rights movement. We have a number of other things happening. People are finding their voice. Ours were still wrapped up, to a certain degree, in the fantasy of who we admired or aspired to be from the point of view of a kid having been influenced by the materials that we absorbed, that we took in, by the experiences that we had. So how does that factor into real life again? Well, again, it influences you. You you believe certain things, you then create stories that uphold that image, and then real life comes at you again. So here's another moment. We were out in our neighborhood one evening. This is real now. We were out in the neighborhood. We were having a good time just hanging out, you know, not getting in any kind of trouble. We happened to be going past... Um, we live, as I said, near Central Park. We happened to be going past this store that was a bicycle rental store. And just as we're approaching the front of this, and it's closed, by the way. It's nighttime. It's closed. These guys come barreling out of there. They're all about our age. They're all maybe 14 or, or something like that on bikes that they had just stolen. It's like three, four, five guys came barreling one right after the other, pivoted, 
uh, jumped on the bikes and rode towards the park or onto Central Park around 103rd Street or 100th Street, rather, and took off. And we saw this and we're standing there, you know, like, quote unquote, this is not a shooting, thank God. This is not something horrific. But this crime had just taken place right in front of us. Now, I do not remember the dialogue that went on between the three of us at that moment. But suddenly, for whatever reason, and more than likely because of the material that we pulled in, the, the fantasies and, and, and fictional adventures that we gave ourselves, our reactions kicked into, we, we got to track these guys down. We gotta, they stole bikes. We got we to get the bikes back. And now we're living the dream. We're, we're the blind alley kids. We're the dead end kids. We're, we're whatever group, the hardy boys, whatever it is you want to think of. Here we are taking off to try and stop this, to try and correct this. Now, we were, we, we were not on bikes ourselves, and the guys had literally sped blocks before we even you know, started moving. But for whatever reason, we believed that they would still be in the neighborhood. It's not that we recognized any of them. Just something said they're going to still be in the neighborhood. We went another couple of blocks, and there's a street fair right there. It's about four or five blocks long on one little narrow street in our neighborhood. And so you've got food vendors out. You've got people strolling, and you've got balloons, and you've got street lights and lamps and lanterns and, and flags. And, and there was even some sort of little carousel ride, just a small little thing that you, you normally see on the back of a tiny truck. I don't think they do this anymore. But in those days, you had these little trucks that would go around with these small little mini uh, amusement rides on them. And we had one of those on the block. So you've got this wonderful backdrop, and it's happening for real. It's happening for real at night, stars above, street lamps, an, a fair or a, a block party with music and all these things happening. And we're moving through the crowds trying to find the bad guys. By the end of the evening, we had found one kid, and he led us to another one. And they were just kids. There was no great chase scene, no leaping over things, no tackling somebody, no fist fights, no, no gunshots, thank goodness. Just a couple of kids who'd been talked into doing something stupid by an older kid. And so we got the bikes back. We got at least two of them back and proudly walked them to the police station that wasn't that far away and turned them in. And I, I, I don't know, like I said, I don't remember a lot of the dialogue from that experience. I don't remember what the police officers at the precinct said. I do remember facial expressions. And I couldn't quite tell at that time, were they, were they amused by this? Were they impressed by this? Were they smirking at us? Was this, oh, God, this kid, these kids are un unbelievable. Do you believe what they did? Isn't this, isn't this cute? You know, I don't know. I honestly don't know what they were really thinking. But I remember feeling like it, it, it wasn't the cheers. It wasn't that pat on the back at the end of the movie where everybody goes, yeah, we did a good job and life's going to be great from here on. It was sort of a anticlimactic in a way. But we felt good. And so that filtered into some of the stories that I wrote years later, that feeling, that those thoughts, the, the energy, what it felt like to be a kid actually living the kind of adventure that you read about. And, I could, and again, it was, it was safe, 
but it also had an impact, had an impact on me and Michael and Angelo. We, we all felt good about ourselves, maybe, maybe more proud of ourselves than we needed to be, you know? I mean, what had we done? We'd done something good. Maybe we felt, you know, all puffed up, but we felt it. And the memory of that, and again, the expressions on faces and the exhilaration, those things are still there. And, and as I said, the life experiences we have feed the stories we tell. They feed that. I believe truly that all three of us wanted to be heroic figures. We wanted to be the good guys. And as we pursued life for real, you know, um, some of that was achieved. Um, Michael became a musician and actually traveled and, uh, you know, with bands and recorded with some of the uh, pop stars at that time. And he didn't become famous or anything like, or wealthy, but that was one of the things he achieved. Uh, Angelo eventually um, went and studied medicine and became, uh, if I remember correctly, I, uh, it's, been a, it's been a number of years, but I do know that he did at one point perform, perform surgery. So that's helping. That's, you know, and he saved a life or two, so that, that's heroic. So in certain ways, we, we were inspired by something back in our younger days, and we're fortunate enough to pursue it and achieve some aspect of it as we grew older. And again, that feeds into our stories, those feelings, those accomplishments, that sense of wonder, and the belief at a certain point in your life that you can do almost anything. Now, moving forward on that, um, just to build on that, you know, collaboration. I've had the opportunity to work with uh, a few different people over the years when I was an actor. You know, in theater, that's total collaboration. Not, not only with the other actors on the stage, but the director, the writer, uh, the technicians. You know, if they don't hit you with the spotlight or the, the lights don't change at the right time, you know, you're standing there in the dark. So it's total collaboration there. And I had a great time uh, during those years. I also, when I got more into uh, or moved more into writing, I collaborated with a number of people. And one of them was a, a good friend of mine named Bill McKay, William McKay, uh, who's a, a much better writer than I am. Uh, and actually has been on the New York Times bestsellers list with one of the Star Trek books he did and a couple of other things. But Bill and I wrote a couple of things together. One of them was a, a series called Scene of the Crime, which was done years ago, okay? And it was a teen series, a YA, young adult series. And we had a good time with that. And the characters that we created uh, were nothing like us in terms of physicalities, but, again, certain aspects of our fondness for uh, certain foods or locations or um, some of the things that we learned in terms of, uh, look, you know, detective work and things like that or the, the type of sleuths that we admired, uh, those things filtered into the story, absolutely. And, of course, you know, I do a lot of work with young people in, in schools and so forth. So a number of the people that I met, those younger personalities, began to feed me the writer you know, to give traits and mannerisms to some of the younger characters. In fact, that's exactly how you tend to work with characters that are not like you or who have life experiences you have not had. I've never been a 17-year-old girl. And subsequently, <laughs> I better talk to a number of them, spend some time with them to get research, you know, material for any kind of 17-year-old character, female character that I'm going to write. But 
I mentioned this because, again, uh, as the years rolled on, uh, collaboration was with a number of people. And one person I worked with, um, we're going to call him Dave for now, uh, because I didn't get permission from him to you know, refer to him during this podcast. Uh, we wanted to create – now, this at this point, I'm, I'm uh, probably in my 30s. Uh, he wanted to he, – he and I wanted to create uh, a pitch for a TV series. And at the time that we were doing this, which is, oh, probably in the 80s uh, or thereabouts, uh, a lot of popular TV series had uh, multiple leads. You, you often had a cast of maybe three or four leads, and the series would trade off each week, focusing on one lead at a time. And so we tried to create a series that followed that format, and we had something we called City Lights. And... This goes to, again, pulling from life. What are you about? What do you know? What do you feel? What do you believe? All of those things, because that feeds into the character formation. So Dave was more into politics and, and government and that sort of thing than I was. And he was more into psychology, psychiatry, therapist or therapy than I was. I, I had some experience with that, but... Again, he far more. So two of the characters he created reflected that. Uh, he create, created a therapist uh, as opposed to a psychiatrist. It's a psychologist. And he also created an ombudswoman, you know, who's in the political arena in the city. And so she gets to see the city from that side of it. You know, she gets, she, like in the mayor's office, she gets to know what's going on, you know, in terms of budget and neighborhoods and community problems and racial situations and that sort of thing. And she's she's got integrity. So playing the, the political game is hard for her, but she's determined to do it for the sake of, of her uh, constituency. And the therapist, you know, he cares about people more on an individual level. He gets to work with them. The character that I created, even though I, you know, helped with the other two, the character that I created was a musician. He was a jazz musician. He's African-American. He was a recording artist, not a superstar, but he's got a couple of albums out. He tours a bit, you know. And so he's seeing the world from an artistic standpoint, but also from, you know, the, the position of a man of color. And because I had spent some time uh, in my late teens and, and early 20s, uh, hanging with bands, you know, friends of mine who had created bands, formed bands, uh, getting involved in writing some lyrics to certain songs that actually were recorded. Because I had that background, I was able to pull that world into it and pull those experiences into that, and that was a part of the collaboration. Now, collaboration is difficult, sometimes a little bit harder for some than others, because you're not only pulling from your life experiences and your point of view, but you now have to share the the stage, if you will, with someone else who has their point of view and their life experiences and their belief system. And the trick of it is to be able to listen to each other, hear what each other's really saying, and trying to determine how you can either accept, reject, or put to the side for a moment the concept or the aspect or the trait that isn't or is quite gelling for you at that moment. Uh, some of the things that were said about the Amsbud woman, you know, I had my opinion, but again, I'm not into politics, but I am into human nature. So there was, you know, that's where I came in with that. Would she really do this? Would a woman in her position say such a thing? Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine and she said this and she said that. So it, it's about putting things down on the table, your notes, doing your research, doing your homework, 
uh, checking yourself in terms of am I just pushing because I want it to be my thing or am I pushing because this is what I know and this is what I believe and I've done my research. So checking yourself on that is necessary. But in the process of that collaboration, again, we both were pulling from our life experiences, from our interest pool, from the things we had immersed ourselves in sufficiently to feel that we could reflect this in a dramatic storytelling situation. So that was one. Um, so we go from childhood experiences and using those to fuel material. Uh, then, you know, we're uh, a little bit older now and we're dealing with um, adult drama, if you will, and television. So I'm going from storytelling for books and little films that I'm doing, little independent projects, to trying to get something into the big boys at ABC, CBS, NBC, wherever. And those, those are the networks at the time because we didn't have Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, all of that at that time. But, you know, trying to, again, create material that would appeal to an audience, create content, if you want to use the current term, that would appeal to a broadcaster. Then I go a little bit further, and we go a little bit deeper. A few years move forward, and I'm doing more work in comics by this time, and I want to create a story that deals with the supernatural. Now, again, you, you're influenced by what you've read, what you've seen, we know all that, but we're also influenced by what we feel, what we believe, and what we fear. When you're doing a story about something tragic and scary, think about feelings. It's not about just the action of a creature or an alien or some giant thing, machine that that rips flesh and, and crushes bones. It's about fear. It's about the victim's fear. It's about the, 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 the concern of even the creature. Uh, in the old um, Lon Chaney Jr. werewolf movies, he was afraid in his human form. He was afraid of his werewolf form. He was afraid that he would change again and kill again and he couldn't stop it he was always afraid yeah and you know if you look at that and you read some of the uh earlier marvel comics with the hulk he didn't want to turn into the hulk bruce banner was afraid being afraid as opposed to embracing this power or this savagery adds another level to your character and so for me at that time that I wanted to create this supernatural series or this storyline. Anyway, I didn't realize it was going to, you know, eventually develop into a series I, I was pushing. Um, I thought about what am I afraid of? Now, you know, you look back, I look back on my life. I look back at that point, you know, uh, some 30 plus years. And I'm saying to myself, uh, the thing that scared me the most were vampires. As a, as a kid, you know, having seen Dracula and a few other things, for some reason, more than werewolves, zombies, mummies, any of that stuff, vampires, scared the heck out of me. And my worst nightmares, when I had really bad nightmares, they were always vampires involved. They were always vampires there. And it was always, it always seemed to come down to 
others had been taken and I was like the last meal on the menu, you know, and, and I'm, I'm running and I can't run fast enough and they're closing in on me and I, I have no way to stop them. And it was all, I mean, break out in sweat when I woke up, you know, it's like, I'm shaking the whole bit. Psychologically, something came to me a few years uh, into my twenties. I began to figure out what that was about. I began to figure out why I had those 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 type of nightmares, and I got I got a hold of it. I got tr- control of that. And sometimes revelation is very informative, and and I'll talk about that sometime. But at the moment that I was working on this supernatural series, I realized that's fear. That was what fear really felt like for me. And subsequently, in creating the story, I went back to my emotions, what that physically felt like, what went through my mind, um, what did it mean to be uh, taken by a vampire. And it's one thing to be killed. It's one thing to have someone shoot you or even to have a vampire kill you. It's a whole other thing to have it bite you, do the things it does, and you come back. And you come back with a certain amount of consciousness, you know who you are, you know what you were, but you're now aware of what you've become. And you know you can't control your craving, that you are more than likely going to go, just like Lon Chaney and the werewolf, you're going to go and kill others. And it may be people you cared about. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that TV series was very popular uh, for a number of years. And Part of it was because of the. It had not only the supernatural aspects, but it had the teen angst. It had that whole thing, that whole vibe going on of like, you know, what's it like to date a bad boy? In this case, the bad boy was a vampire. What's what's redemption like? Because you know, Angel, the vampire, had been a vampire for a hundred and some odd years, done heinous things, but now because he had a soul, which we won't go into how he got that in the story. The bottom line is he felt the shame and the horror of what he'd done and was trying to find redemption. So again, the feelings, emotions that you experience are, are again, fuel for the creative fire, you know, just to use that term again. So pulling from life for the Blind Alley kids, you know, and this goofy little project I'm going to do with my buddies, uh, pulling from life to do collaborations as an adult writer trying to get his first pitch for a TV series together, you know, or creating comics or short stories in a supernatural vein years later. You're always pulling from what you know, what you feel, what you've experienced, what you've seen. And sometimes, you know, because I said, you know, the, the title of this was was like inspiration and, and, and imitation and perspiration and innovation, you know. So imitation, sometimes you copy, whether it's straight out, you know, plagiarism, which you shouldn't do, uh, but as a kid you might, um, or you do an homage, which is a very polite way of saying that you copy, kind of. Uh, but no, you do something to honor a thing that imp- that inspired you or had an impact on you and you want to somehow say here here's my take on that thing and I really think it's great what this other person did so you can you pull from and you have a little something in there that you you may be close to imitating or at least again sampling you know to use the uh, the term to move forward but you're also doing reflection you're looking at something like I do with the vampire thing you're looking at something you felt that you experienced that you did that happened and you're thinking about it, you're examining it, you're exploring it. 
You're trying to see how it affected you, why it affected you. How would it work, you know, on someone else? What if this was their motivation for such and such? Reflection on an experience feeds you information, which feeds you material resources for telling those stories. So, you know, in some ways what I would look at is I would say that, you know, we, um, you have to look at, in terms of life, what have you done or seen? Or who and what do you admire? What do you believe or love, hate, or fear? And last, what do you dream? What are your dreams or what do you dream about? These are very clear indicators of where your mind is, where your heart is, where your spirit is, where your creativity can feed. I'll repeat those. What have you done or seen? Who and what do you admire? What do you believe, love, hate, or fear? And what do you dream? What do you dream about or what are your dreams? These are places, again, these are questions that you can ask yourself. These are places that you can go in your head for inspiration as a springboard to moving through your stories. So I mentioned that, um, again, in the past when I worked with Bill McKay, we did the scene of the crime thing Uh, just a few months ago. I uh, had the opportunity to work with Travis Langley on a project called the Black Panther Psychology Book, Hidden Kingdoms. And uh, Travis, as a matter of fact, Travis and myself will be at the San Diego Comic-Con in just a few weeks. As a matter of fact, January, I'm sorry, January, (laughs) no, no, July 18th through the 21st is a Comic-Con. And uh, I believe... We're going to be doing a panel on Saturday. I believe it's Saturday. I haven't received the schedule yet. So I'll definitely be there. I'll be doing another panel, too, on comics and creating stories and things like that. So if you're there, look look me up, look us up. I'm hoping that my buddy Don McGregor will be joining us because, uh, naturally, we interviewed him for the Black Panther psychology book, you know, Hidden Kingdoms. We interviewed Don, and he wrote a really wonderful foreword for the book. Don McGregor, as you may or may not know, wrote Panther's Rage, which was a maxi-series, a 12-issue story written over 30 years ago. Uh, it was one of the first major comic book stories for the Black Panther. Um, and that it that particular storyline is about 80% of the film that everybody saw you know, and loved, thank goodness. So uh, if he's there, then hopefully the three of us will be on that stage together talking about this experience. And, you know, for me, no, I didn't write Black Panther comics, but I did, I was around during that time. I did help Don with a couple of things with one of the stories, and I knew Stan Lee, and so I've been on the periphery involved in that for a number of years. So collaborating on this book, I was a co-editor on the book, and I also interviewed uh, Keith uh, David Williams, the actor who was one of the first voiceover talents for an animated uh, Black Panther character. Um, and I also got to talk with a few of the other writers uh, who are therapists and things who wrote pieces for the book. So that's working with a lot of different people, getting their impressions, their feelings, listening to them. So you really hear what they're saying and being able to help coordinate that into a comprehensive, I hope, informative and entertaining book 
that a bunch of you should run right out now and buy because you can't get it. It's on uh, Amazon right now. Um, but also, you know, collaboration, being able to work with people and the give and take of that and then calling on your own personal experiences. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention, which I also will have with me out in San Diego, um, when I created my character Blackjack years ago, and we're talking over 30, uh, actually, you know, it's almost 30 years ago, uh, African-American soldier of fortune, 1930s. Uh, I, I chose that era and I chose a character without superpowers for a very specific reason. And yes, I chose to make him African-American or black for very, very specific reasons. Uh, one, in case nobody knows what I look like, is I'm, I'm black, you know, I'm African-American. Um, but I chose to, to create him to, to put him out there and hopefully to build an audience and fan base for those kind of stories and for a hero or role model who looked like me, uh, except stronger, faster, <laughs> you know, uh, more incredible in certain feats and capable of certain feats and things. But, you know, is an African-American man as opposed to a, a white man or, or, or any other uh, particular back, um, cultural uh, extraction. I also created his sister at that time, you know, and his, her name is Mary. And for years, I wanted to do more stories on her. Now, I was an only child. I didn't have any siblings. I had no idea what it was like to grow up with a brother or a sister, older or younger. But... When I had children, when my wife and I had children, you know, now I'm watching my sons and my daughter interacting and thinking, wow, you know, that's maybe what it would have been like. And wow, watching them develop and the, the basis of their relationship. And, and my wife and I working very hard to, to hopefully get them to understand that this is family. These, these are the people who wish the best for you right now at the beginning of your life and should and would be there for you as life goes forward. Yes, I know life can be hard and people can change and all that good stuff, but what we were trying to share with our children was family should have your back. You know, we may not always agree with what you're going to do. We may we may argue and bicker and all that kind of stuff, but in in, in the the bottom line of it is we should have each other's back. And when mom and I are gone, you know, we hope that brothers and sisters will band together if the situation calls for it. So I, you know, Aaron's sister in the story to me was very important. She was not some peripheral character that I cared very little for or about. And I wanted to do stories about her. And just to give you a quick idea of how my mind works, and I may have mentioned this before in some other broadcasts, so bear with me. Mary, uh, when, when uh, Aaron and Mary lost their parents, they were in Europe and they were in their late teens. Aaron and Mary were in their late teens. And they stayed there for another few years, living with friends of the family, and then eventually decided they wanted to return to the United States. Aaron, Blackjack, wanted to use New York as his base of operation. He would spring forth from there to go on these globetrotting adventures. Mary did not want that. She wanted a home, nice little house somewhere, quiet community, some, you know, some land so she could have flowers in the garden at front and maybe some vegetables in the back. And so she moved south. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm sorry, I've got a black woman who's single, who's moving to the south in the 1930s. What am I thinking? Why? Why, why am I having her do this? And I didn't have an answer. And we're talking years ago. I had no idea why she was doing that. It just felt right. It's what the character would do. 
okay, I don't know why, but that's what I'll do. And over the years, because I did not get to do, you know, multiple stories about her and really spend a lot of time with her the way I did with Aaron, every now and then I would either write her into a story for a moment or two or give her a short story in some way, shape, or form. And just about a year ago, as I was working on this, the last two short stories that I did, which are in this new book, um, it came to me. And I knew exactly why she had moved to the South. And you'll possibly get an idea if you pick up the book. But what I'm saying is, in developing not only the characters over a prolonged period of time, but also in developing as a writer... And also in having life experiences and seeing certain things, past, present, and projecting the future. It's a process, and we develop more and more as creatives. So I now understand Mary better. I understand the character better. It's almost like she's told me more about herself. But I also understand I'm pulling from my belief system, from my understanding, and then from the experiences, et cetera, of women that I have known. And so in this case, the book's called The Day, the Day Chronicles. Let me, let me enunciate The Day Chronicles, The Secret Life of Mary Day. It'll be coming out uh, on Amazon, full-blown, full-blown launch uh, the first week of July. Uh, I gave it a soft launch in April, and some a few people got early looks at it. Um, you call them the beta group, if you will. I also wanted to release it at a time when I could, you know, dedicate it to my daughter, which I did do. Um, but now the the full blown launch is happening this coming week. So hopefully you'll you'll jump on Amazon um, in about two days, because July first is tomorrow. So by July third, it should be right there, and you should be able to order it or pre-order it. But again, The Day Chronicles, The Secret Life of Mary Day, that's available on Amazon. The Black Panther Psychology Book is available on Amazon, uh, as are some of the Black uh, the Blackjack stories that, that I've done or Chris has done with me or by himself uh, are also available on Amazon. So that was a commercial. That's what it sounded like. I, I meant it actually to, to support the other things I've said. But yeah, that, that also turned into a commercial. So yeah, buy the books because they're good. Uh, come to see me and uh, Travis Langley and hopefully Don McGregor at San Diego Con uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, but more importantly, please, 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 please continue working on your creative pursuits. Uh, I have fashioned most of this episode around writing, but it's the same thing for illustrating. It's the same thing for composing music. It's the same thing for developing choreography. You you call on who you are to make your work unique to you. You want to make something, create something that is for an audience, whatever audience it is that you're striving to acquire, whatever fan base you're, you're trying to appeal to. You do want to create something that connects with them. But ultimately, again, it's connecting you with the work that connects the work with your audience. And on that note, again, wishing all well. Uh, please, please, please let me hear from you. You know, leave those comments in the uh, comment section, uh, on however you're getting us, uh, whether it's through uh, iTunes or uh, WordPress or uh, Anchor or however you're receiving us. Our email address is on here as well. You know, tell the damn story. The email address is ttds, Thomas Thomas David Stewart, on air at Gmail. 
That's an email address for us. Just let us know. Share some of your experiences, you know, your writing experiences. Ask questions. I've got uh, more than 30-plus years doing this. Chris has got a, a roughly t- about the same amount of time. Um, so put out those questions. See if we can answer any of them. And if we can't, we will certainly seek the answer elsewhere and share it with you. Thanks again. Take care. And, uh, oh, this is episode 93. So getting closer to that episode 100. And we've got some uh, interviews and things lined up over the next few shows as well. So it's a good place to be. So be here next week. Take care. Bye.